privileged to um, be able to meet Maria at the airport yesterday. Um, when I was talking to her a couple months ago, and we were trying to figure out how would we know how we would know each other. Um, we were describing ourselves to each other, and she said that she had black big hair. <laughs> and so I was watching people get off the plane, and I wasn't so much looking for the hair as I was. I knew I would see her. I would know her when I see her saw her eyes. And as soon as she got off, she looked at me, and I looked at her. And we greeted each other like we were old friends. So people at the airport probably thought that we've always known each other. Um, I haven't got to spend a whole lot of time with her, but the time I have spent, um, I really am impressed with her Al-Anon program. So I give you Maria from Los Angeles. Hi, my name's Maria, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. I've been a member of Al-Anon since the 13th of April, 1985. God saved my life on that day, and I hope I am eternally grateful for that. Um, my home group is the Stepped Up Group in Los Angeles, California, actually down in the Westchester suburb, which is LAX, where our airport is. So if you ever fly into LA and you have nothing to do on a Thursday night, um, come on down, because we'd love to have you. We have a really enthusiastic group. Um, it probably averages between 70 and 80 people on a normal night, and uh, on birthday nights there's probably about 130 people that come. And uh, our, our meeting was, uh, Vinoy started our meeting Texas style, and so on birthday night um, the sponsor talks about the sponsoree before the sponsoree talks, and the whole night is devoted to birthdays once a month, and it's a really amazing night. And people know who's going to take the cake um the whole month, and they um, so they bring cards and flowers and presents and everything, and it's just it's it's like Christmas once a month, with a whole front table um, piled up celebrating Al-Anon recovery, and uh, it's a really enthusiastic group, and we have greeters that greet at the door, and we have a lot of commitments at that meeting, and um, people take their commitments very seriously there. And so that enables us to have a really good time. And that's what I found in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon is the people who take their program the most seriously are the ones that are having the most fun. And um, <clears throat> I saw when they uh, started reading Al-Anon literature that a lot of the alcoholics took off like their rear ends were on fire. <laughs> and uh, that's the story of my life. And, uh, <laughs> Because, of course, I was sitting there not thinking about the amount of people that, that the, the amount of male alcoholics in the room who stayed. I was thinking about the ones that got away. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> I'll have to do a 10 step on that tonight. Um, at home, um, in California and the different places that I've seen, it seems like there's two different, it's all Al-Anon family groups, but there seem to be two different kinds of heritage. Um, and neither one of them is good and neither one of them is bad. They're, everybody's equal in these, in these rooms and that's why I was comfortable and was accepted here and that's why I stayed here and didn't have to die out there. Um, <clears throat> but, um, it seems like they're the groups that come from the lineage of sponsorship, the, the Marcy Whites and the Elsa Chamberlains and those kind of people that, that their sponsors and sponsor sponsors and sponsor sponsors came into the program before there was Al-Anon literature and they worked the program out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, that they take that fifth tradition that says we do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves very seriously. And then there's other groups that don't come from from that kind of thing and focus only on the Al-Anon literature. And both kinds of groups are wonderful and both kinds of groups have a lot of recovery and I'm so grateful. Um, we do focus on Al-Anon literature in our meetings, but um, our heritage is also um, very much um, stressed where I come from. So that's just my experience and, you know, if you want to shoot me, shoot me. But um, <laughs> I... Uh, so I, I did, and I, I never use visual aids, but now after George's talk, I'm really glad I brought something because I felt like I should have brought you all gifts, and I didn't. Um, I do have cards with the St. Francis prayer on the back, though, so if you want a St. Francis prayer, i got plenty of them. Come up, I've got, you know, blank checks. Um, 
I brought some extra socks with me in my suitcase and uh, a couple of t-shirts, you know, just help yourself. But um, in the uh, AA 12 and 12, uh, it says AA's 12 traditions apply to the life of the fellowship itself. It's, it's talking about oh, the AA 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, like George was talking about and Peggy was talking about and Suzanne was talking about, can expel the obsession to drink and to enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. AA's 12 traditions apply to the life of the fellowship itself, and it goes on about that. Though the essays which follow were written mainly for members, it is thought by many of AA's friends that these pieces might arouse interest and find application outside AA itself. Many people, non-alcoholics, report that as a result of the practice of AA's 12 steps, they have been able to meet other difficulties in life. They think that the 12 steps can mean more than sobriety for problem drinkers. They see them a way to happy and effective living for many, alcoholic or not. And uh, that's the story of the, the my, my life right there in the program of Al-Anon Family Groups. Um, these 12 steps absolutely saved my life. And um, I have, like, the most boring story in Al-Anon, so I'll try to get through that part really quickly. I didn't have any gunfire in the living room, and um, I didn't clean up anybody's vomit. Um you know, on a regular basis in my in my family, um, you know, somebody had the flu or something, but <laughs> that was about it. Um, but my family, um, my family does have a lot of alcoholism in it. I just didn't know it when I got here. Um, I grew up uh, in Beverly Hills, and uh, for most of my life, from the age of six on, and uh, swimming pools, movie stars, and it was. Um, <laughs> And that was, um, and that's what it was like. And um, that was a problem also for me when I came in the program because I thought, you know, um, like Suzanne was talking about, my elevator, you know, didn't go down to, you know, the floors of a lot of different people's levels. And um, but that was only financially. My spiritual elevator was down at the bottom, and uh, I, I think I probably had one more floor to go before I, you know, met the devil himself. And um, so um, I had, you know, my own personal hell when I came in here, and, and I had to get out of thinking that my case was different when I got here. Um, I grew up for not wanting, you know, not wanting for anything materially. Um, I had uh, one younger sister when I was seven and a half years old. I was an only child, and I still think of myself up until the last two years as an only child. <laughs> she invaded my territory, and she stole my parents. And... Um, I didn't forgive her for that because my self-esteem at a very young age was already so low. And I can't say that's because I come from parents who drink or don't drink or whatever it is. My life is not my parents' fault. I'm a grown-up now. You know, like we had a speaker the other day that said, a speaker, he said he was talking to his sponsor and he said, but you don't understand, I had a very, a very tough childhood. And his sponsor said, yes, but it's over now. <laughs> and then... This program is about uh, taking responsibility for the quality of my own life. And uh, the quality of my own life suffered because of my actions and because of things that were going on within me, not the things that were going on around me. Although I will still give you a list of other, you know, outside things that I can blame um, when I'm having a bad day, like like Peggy talked about. I still have my defects of character in my pocket and can whip them out at, at any given moment. Um, <clears throat> much to your chagrin. But... Um, <laughs> That's another one of my favorite things they say in the program that the steps are to protect me from me and the traditions are to protect you from me. I just love that. <laughs> That's just so, <laughs> so great. Um, anyway, so um, I had this uh, little sister when I was seven and a half years old, and I already had such low self-esteem and a defect, another defect of competition. And competition's always been one of my biggest defects of character. It's competing with women for men's attention, competing with my mom for my dad's attention, competing with anyone for anything, for any reason, competing with, you know, whoever. You could pass me on the street and whatever. I would, I would on, a, on a day that I'm not God-centered, that's one of my biggest defects of character. And... Um, so I was uh, basically I lived in the world of Nancy Drew. I um, I loved Nancy Drew. I loved reading. I lived in my own little world. I had um, I had one best friend all the time, and my best friend I would control them until they didn't do something my way, and then I would write them off, and I would go on to a new best friend that I could control, and um, also a pattern that I set very early in my life. Um, 
George was talking about heroes. A lot of people, Peggy, a lot of people have been talking about their heroes. Um, it got me thinking that my heroes, when I came in the program, the people I wanted to be like were um, Ava Perone, <laughs> who I totally idolized, and um, Mata Hari. And um, <laughs> for those of you who aren't familiar with those with those uh, people, I um, they're perfect pre-Al-Anon people because um, Ava Perone wanted to um, run the world, um, stomping on people while she climbed up the ladder of success, and told everybody else what to do, and stood behind her man as the as the puppeteer, and um, and Mata Hari uh, used her feminine wiles to get her uh, to get secrets from men that she could use against them later. And um, that's pretty much the story of my life. And that's it. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but uh, so anyway, I um, I, I met uh, my first little uh, boyfriend when I was um, six years old, and um, his name was Patrick. And we used to have this cream that used to glow in the dark. And um, and we would take cream and we'd put little dots on our faces and then he would start at one end of my mom's coat closet and I would start at the other end and we would find our way through the coats and then we would we would we would kiss each other and that was just the best thing I had ever experienced in my life <laughs> absolutely the best thing you know I there there was just he was it he was absolutely it I just I've never even gotten over him I mean he was just <laughs> He was absolutely the cutest, handsomest, just the coolest guy in school. He he ran with his hands like this and moved his head, and that was really really cool. So all the other guys ran like this, and um, he'd go, "Come on, baby, light my fire," and um, that was it for me. That was um, that was my first drink. I I sparkled when I took a drink of that little boy. Let me tell you, and. Um, And that really set up that phenomenon of craving that um, I should <laughs> pursuing to the gates of insanity or death. Um, I'm going to jump ahead. I'm, I'm going to cover some some stuff with my sister. Uh, my sister was a very troubled kid. Um, I can tell you now because my sister has told you now that she's an alcoholic, and. Um, my sister today probably has about um, five days of sobriety. She had 17 months up until about a week ago. And uh, she decided um, that getting a good night's sleep after not sleeping for a couple of nights um, was um, more important than um, not taking pills that uh, unknowing and I'm sure well-intentioned doctors gave her in a hospital and she took all those pills because she had them in the house. I love the hay bale story. You know, you don't keep a hay bale in your house just because a horse might be coming by. And uh, and um, I heard a speaker, an AA speaker, the other day say that her life was saved by a doctor who, when she went to the emergency room, he didn't treat her alcoholism with medication. Unfortunately, my doctor, my sister's emergency room doctor, uh, where she repeatedly goes to the emergency room when she gets herself uh, cranked up on drama and gets into her asthma, so that she can periodically go to that emergency room, periodically setting up the pills. Um, her doctor doesn't understand alcoholism. And um, those pills were there. And um, maybe this is a new sobriety for her, and maybe this is a new start, and maybe it's a lesson, and maybe it's not. And it's none of my business. All I can do is pray for her and stay out of her way. But... Uh, my sister was a very troubled kid at that time, and um, she used to take my mom's diamond watches and other things and, and throw them down in the ivy down the street. She would steal and and do a bunch of things, come into my room and steal my stuff, and she was just a really troubled kid, and, and um, so my dad would spank her, and my dad would spank her almost every night because she was in trouble almost every night. And my dad, when my dad didn't spank her, my mom spanked her, and when my mom didn't spank her, my, sis, my housekeeper spanked her with a wooden spoon, and when she didn't spank her, I hit her. And uh, that was the life that my sister had, and I'm, um, I was devastated by that, and made amends re repeatedly to her throughout the years. And um, I finally felt some internal forgiveness from God, just probably only about eight months ago, when I was at a big book study with Vinoy, actually. And uh, it was the first time that um, the amends even felt. I thought it was one of those things. I thought there were certain things that you make amends for because I, I had two things that I made amends for, that with my sister being one of them, that I'd never forgiven myself for. And um, 
and I thought that that was appropriate, and that, and it may be. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I'm a, I'm a babe in this program, and um, so, but I did get a little bit of freedom from that. And since my sister's been in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's just been an amazing thing that I actually have a sister today. But my sister, as a result of that, wound up being sent off to a, a, a school for troubled kids, and she wound up um, coming back temporarily home. Could last with my parents' constant criticism for about three months, and then ran away. She ran away to Hollywood Boulevard, and my parents hired a bunch of private detectives and cops and caught her within three days, locked her up for a 72-hour hold at Cedar sinai Medical Center, and then um, paid about $30,000, I think, to um, get her moved up on a list of uh, people to be taken at Menninger's Clinic in Kansas and locked her up for three years of her life. And um, my sister's just an alcoholic. But that's what my family does, is um, when something's wrong, they fix it. And um, and that's what I always, was always taught to do, and that's what I always thought that I could do for myself. If something's wrong, you fix it. There's no such word as powerless in my family. Absolutely not. You just don't do that. You are never, ever, ever powerless. And um, so anyway, that's neither here nor there. But um, I want to skip ahead to um, when I was uh, 19 years old. I um, was um, decided at that point that I was tired of my life and I was going to go to a bar like those other lowly, sleazy, tacky women and I was going to pick myself up a one-night stand. It was kind of like, if you can't beat them, join them. That's what I'm going to do. And even though those women are just so disgusting that do that, I'm going to go do that. Now, I don't know what made me think I hadn't had a one-night stand before that. <laughs> You know, sitting there like, you know, Queen Elizabeth or something. <laughs> but denial is a wonderful thing. And um, another one of uh, my favorite defects of character. And um, and so I decided to go to this bar. And I went to this bar, and the, the band was playing, and I checked out all the guys in the bar. And, oh, he's cute. Oh, he's cute. Oh, he's married to her. Oh, he's too this. He's too that. Whatever. And then I saw the keyboard player. And he was sitting at the keyboard and he was really, really white-faced, and he had red rims around his eyes, and his head was lolling back around. He could barely keep his eyes open, and I thought, that's the guy for me. <laughs> but because, you know, I'm better than all of those, you know, lowly barfly one-night stand women, I had to go listen to him speak at the break. I had to go overhear his conversations to make sure that he was intelligent enough to be with someone of my caliber for our intellectual one night stand. I don't know what we're going to do. We've got, we've got, you know, psychology or something. I have no idea what I was thinking. Anyway, so he was sitting at the bar and he was chatting with people and, um, and he started talking about Europe and his trip to Europe. And, um, you know, he went here and he went there and everything. And I thought, oh, how continental. He, he, this is the guy for me. So I, um, I waited till after the evening was over. And I went and I picked him up. And I laid on my best uh, girl at the bar routine. And um, I said, can I buy you a drink? And he said, I don't drink. And I said, oh, because uh, he seemed drunk. <laughs> and I said, oh, do you smoke smoke marijuana and he said no I don't smoke marijuana and, and uh, he said actually I crashed, crashed my truck into the front of the Bank of America on Lancashire Boulevard about 25 days ago and I've been sober for 25 days so he didn't have a car so I knew he needed me <laughs> and so um, I offered to give him a ride home and that became my three and a half year one night stand <laughs> And um, I went to I went to AA meetings with him probably about close to five times a week. I sat in those AA meetings with him for years, and I never even realized that till this year. I came out of denial. I thought, you know, I mean, I've been around. I've been in Al-Anon for 14 and a half years almost, but I've really been around the program for probably like 19 years because I was with him for 17, 17, 18 years because I was at a lot of meetings. And I would sit there and I would go, oh, look, they're taking their cakes, those alcoholics, you know. I love Suzanne talking about those people. That's what my family calls you all. And, um, and I thought, that's so wonderful. They're all taking their cakes and they brought their little daughter and their, their mother. And, oh, this is just so sweet. And grandma came. And I was just, I was so caught up. And then I'd go home and I'd treat him like crap. He was newly sober. And I treated him like crap. 
because I couldn't, I didn't understand going to open AA meetings as part of an Al-Anon program because I didn't have an Al-Anon program. I didn't understand that learning to laugh at open AA meetings and learning about the disease of alcoholism is what enables me to not, to try to not, I should say not, shouldn't say not, try to not take the disease of alcoholism personally. So I would go to those meetings and I couldn't, I, I couldn't extrapolate the information I got there to my outside life. It just, it just didn't apply. So I wanted Mike because my whole obsession was just wanting him to love me the way I want him to love me. My emptiness inside is described by every alcoholic I've ever heard from a podium. I drank. I smoked marijuana. I did those things. It didn't work for me. It's fattening. <laughs> it doesn't taste good. And it just, it doesn't do the... <clears throat> You know, it doesn't, you know, like you guys talk about, I could dance, I'm now six feet tall, I lost my acne, all of that stuff. I, it doesn't do that for me. One out of every ten drinkers, that's what alcoholism does for them, what drinking alcohol does for them. It doesn't do that for me. I still have the same emptiness and the same self-loathing and the same worries and the same, the, the, the four horsemen and all of that stuff that an alcoholic has. But alcohol doesn't fix me. So where does somebody like me go? You got me. I go to Cincinnati. And um, I, um, which I want to say, uh, let me just digress for a moment here. You know, I'm not from these parts. <laughs> so when I saw that flyer that Shelly sent me, and by the way, I was going to thank Shelly at the end, but I just want to thank Shelly for driving out, for picking us up yesterday, for calling me months ago and being so warm and welcoming. She's just an amazing example of Al-Anon, and I love the fact, like she was talking about, we have the language of the heart, and I immediately felt like I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm with my people. You know, they may be, you guys may be those people to my family, but you're my people to me, you know? And I felt, I felt so comfortable and it was just amazing and I loved meeting her daughter. She's so cute. But, um, anyway, when, when Shelly sent me this flyer and it said Buckeye Roundup, you know, and it had the little Buckeye flower thing on it, but I didn't know that. I just thought it was a flower and Buckeye, I thought it was like bullseye, like a buck's eye, <laughs> like a deer, you know? <laughs> like it's eye. And so, the Buckeye Roundup, I don't know, I just thought it was, okay, a buck's eye, they hunt there or something, I don't know. And then, and then the theme of the conference was, we can look the world in the eye. And then we got here, and there were these big baskets of candy, like eyeballs. <laughs> and they said, here, have a buckeye. And I'm like, no thanks. <laughs> Looks delicious, but I'm going to have to pass. <laughs> but Laura, who came with me, who is, uh, Laura's been a part of my life for, for uh, over five years now, and uh, I'm so grateful to have her as a part of my life. And uh, when she found out I was coming here, she saved up her money to come out and fly out here with me, and I'm, I'm so grateful. That's, that's amazing to have people in my life like that. And then her family, and she's from Kentucky, and her family drove down from Kentucky just to see her and, and uh, to come to, to this conference and everything. And I just, this is what, this is what the program is, is family. You know, that's what the program is, and it's just amazing. But Laura, being from Kentucky, explained what a Buckeye was. So, it's okay, you can relax. <laughs> anyway, um, so here I was with this poor alcoholic who was just trying to stay sober one day at a time. He was in new sobriety, in his first year of sobriety, and I wanted him to love me the way I wanted him to love me. It's all about me, don't you know? You have to love me. You have to be expressive with your feelings. If I look nice, you have to tell me you look nice at the time that I decree is the appropriate time you tell me you look nice. You have to say it sincerely enough. The men are nodding their heads like, yeah, that's my woman. <laughs> You have to say it sincerely enough, honestly enough, you know, punctually enough. 
Um, I have to be number one. That's what fills me up. That's what makes me feel good. Now, of course, any normal, if there are such things as normies out there, person would not choose an alcoholic to be with if that's the case. Because if you're with a practicing alcoholic, the top priority in their life is to drink and to get alcohol. And I will chase them and want to become the top priority in their life because that's what sets up that torque in me so that I can run out my defects of character that I am not that I can use on other people and I never have to change or do anything about myself. And if the alcoholic's sober, their top priority is staying sober and working with other alcoholics. And I still wanted to be number one and I wanted to get in there and one more time compete, 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 compete. And I wanted to be number one in his life. You know, everything he did, he didn't do it right. He drank too much coffee. He ate, his mother sent him chocolate chip cookies from out of state and I hid them and rationed them out to him. <laughs> because he, you know, he would go to the, he would go to the bathroom at home and I would stand by the door and I would knock on the door and I'd say, how long are you going to be in there? And, um, he wouldn't answer. And, um, <laughs> but when I, you know, if you ask him enough times, they'll finally answer just to get rid of you. And, um, he would tell me and then I'd say, well, are you going number one or number two? I just, I was completely obsessed because alcohol doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. The only thing I know is to be obsessed with another human being. That is my drink. That is my drink of choice, and I will pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. The same feeling that I got when he told me, yes, I love you, on the phone, that feeling of well-being, that feeling that every single space in me was filled, that feeling that I am going to be okay. I can go visit my family if I'm with him and I'm going to be okay. If he acts right and looks right and dresses right and I spend all my money on his wardrobe, I will be okay. That feeling of I can go to a restaurant that I might be intimidated to go to otherwise. If I'm on his arm, I'm going to be okay. All the courage that alcohol gives the alcoholic, I get from the alcoholic. And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know I was an Al-Anon, and I didn't know that that was my disease. And I do the same thing an alcoholic does. That feeling that they try to recreate from when they first started drinking, and then it stops working, and it stops working, and it stops working, and they think, I'm going to have to stop drinking now. And then they take one drink one day, and without even realizing, they get a glimpse of that original feeling that they got. And that's just enough to keep them drinking for another few months or another few years. Because they're pursuing that feeling to the gates of insanity or death. That's me. If he says, you know, honey, sometimes I just love you so much I can't even see. That will hold me for three more lousy years. <laughs> that does it for me. When I first saw him in that bar, the bartender pointed out and said, oh, I have to give change to this, to this beautiful woman or something. And he turned around, he gave me the once up and down and turned back around and kept talking to his friend about his trip to Europe, which, by the way, had happened 20 years before. <laughs> but he was an alcoholic, so he was still talking about it. And... Um, <laughs> I was an Al-Anon, so I was impressed. And uh, it's like Benoit says, the alcoholic's in full flight from reality, and if you really look carefully, you see the Al-Anon just flying right on after him. You know, who's the sick one in this in in this situation? Um, so. Uh, I do the same thing that alcoholics do. And just when I'm about to give it up, and just when I think, that's all right, I'm going to change drinks. I've had enough of him. I'm going to go get my fix someplace else. I'm going to go find somebody else to fix me. Boom, something happens. And he feels the rejection, or he feels the detachment, and he says that one right thing that's going to get me back, and that gets me back, and I hang on one more time. Or I try dating him only on weekends. Or I try dating only a certain alcoholic. Or I try taking a trip, not taking a trip. Taking the cat, not taking the cat. Doing anything I can to control and enjoy my alcoholic. I, that's the, the, it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the great obsession of every abnormal drinker is that one day they will be able to control and enjoy their drinking. And my ideal is to be able to control and enjoy another human being. My ideal right now would be to control and enjoy every single human being in this room. But I can either control you or I can enjoy you. I can't do both. And I spent every single moment in my relationships trying to control and enjoy another human being. Completely emasculating that man, constantly criticizing, constantly putting him down, constantly in competition with his meetings, not supporting sobriety, not supporting his sponsor direction, 
not supporting any principle of the program, the traditions, the fact that the unity of the group, of our group, come, came first, the fact the second tradition says there was one authority, it's a loving God, it's not me, you know, about the, the seventh tradition being fully self-supporting. Uh, that's not just financially, but emotionally and spiritually and otherwise. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know about the fifth tradition, that I'm just supposed to try to encourage, well, uh, encourage and understand my alcoholic relatives, whether they're behaving the way I want them to behave or not, that I have to take that tradition for me to do it, regardless of anyone else's behavior. I didn't know about anonymity in a relationship, taking the, that tradition, both of the traditions of anonymity into a relationship about the fact that if I'm doing something kind and loving, I can do it anonymously and not use it as part of my checklist so that the next time he does something wrong, I don't have to say, well, you know, on December 3rd I did this, and then December 4th I did this, 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 and this, and this is your checklist. This is everything you've done wrong. You know, I didn't know about being of service in a relationship just to be of service in a relationship. You know, Dr. Paul wakes up every morning, and he talks about in his talk, and he talks about marital sobriety, and he talks about waking up every morning and making Max eat her instant cup of coffee because she doesn't like regular cup of coffee, and he takes one and he makes it very, very hot, and he puts one ice cube in the cup of coffee. She doesn't want it to be made warm. She wants it to be made. She likes to make it very hot with one ice cube in it. She doesn't want regular coffee. She wants instant coffee. She doesn't want milk. She wants the non-dairy creamer. Now, he may want to have his coffee a completely different way, but you know what? He wakes up every morning and he does that for his wife just because he loves her. I didn't understand that premise. If I asked an alcoholic, if I asked the man who I supposedly loved, but it was all self-obsession and it was all about me, 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 like everyone's talking about the third step prayer this weekend, relieve me of the bondage of self. And all of that whole chapter before that talks about self, selfishness, self-centeredness, self-seeking, self, 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 that four-letter word. Everything about my whole life was geared to that four-letter word, self. And if, the, if, if he said to me, I, what, if I said, what do you want for your birthday? And he said, I want a bowl of tapioca pudding. I'd show up on his birthday with a tanker full of chocolate pudding. <laughs> I have to bring the tanker full because that's going to prove in this grandiose way how much I really love him so he's going to know he owes me. And I have to show up with chocolate pudding because I don't like tapioca pudding. <laughs> it was all about me. And this poor man was just trying to stay sober one day at a time. And he's still sober, thank the Lord. And... Um, and I had no program, and I got worse and worse and worse. And the more I got worse and worse and worse, I became his mother. And no one wants to have any sort of any sort of romantic relationship with their mother. Uh, well, there are some stories I've heard in AA, but <laughs> <laughs> but this guy didn't. And um, as the relationship became platonic and more and more and more distant, I had to go get my fix someplace else. And that set up a chain of events uh, that I will skim over in a general way, but the things that I did to sell myself out to the point where I got uh, to this program. And uh, I, there are things that I'm not proud of. I, I wound up um, having to get that validation and that fix, get my drink from a married man. And um, when that didn't work, I went to another man who was involved with it with a, with a woman. And as a result of doing a lot of things and playing a lot of games and doing a lot of things with other with other people, I wound up getting pregnant quite a few times and um, terminating those pregnancies because it was more important for me to do that and get my instant fix of him thinking that I was number one and that I was okay than it was for me to take responsibility for being a woman, for me to act like a lady, for me to do anything that involves at all any sort of, of uh, dignity or grace or uh, integrity. Those I always thought I had those things, and I walked around, paraded, paraded around as though I had those things, but I didn't act as though I had those things. And that's why this program is so great for people like me, because I can come in here as delusional and in denial as I want to be, and people just say, sit down, honey, it's okay, keep coming back. And eventually the walls of denial started to fall down, and I got to see that it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that maybe many of us had philosophical and moral convictions galore, but we could not live up to them. And... Um, I really thought I had a lot of philosophical and moral convictions, and I didn't live up to any of them. But all I did, I was so busy feeling, I felt so bad about myself, and I was so empty inside because I had no God within me. And I was just relying on chasing my substance all the time and getting my drink, my fix all the time, that um, I lost my train of thought on that one. So that's what happens when you're not God-centered. <laughs> but um, about being God-centered. And um, when I have that God within me, 
suddenly I'm able to come out of denial and see who I really am and not run. And that's the freedom that this program has given me. I do have the ability to look the world in the eye today. When I saw that theme, besides the eyeball thing, I um, <laughs> I really loved it because um, when I um, I do work the program out of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous with the ladies that I that I have the honor of sponsoring, and we always sit down in front of my fireplace. You know, in California, we don't have like real fires; we have the gas logs, and um, so we always sit down. We turn on the fire, and. Um, <laughs> And the air conditioning, so we don't get too hot. And <laughs> after their inventory, and and we kneel down in front of some cushions that I have in front of my fireplace, and uh, and we we put those pages one at a time in that fire, and we watch those pages burn. And as we're doing that, um, I read that part in the big book. Those promises that um, they keep reading to close these meetings out. Those are the those fifth step promises. And when I look up at them and I say, "We can look the world in the eye," um, that's. That's the sentence that always gets me and always gets me crying because I, it's the first time that I get to look at these ladies that I've probably been working for, for, working with for, you know, anywhere between nine months and a year and a half. And that's the first time that I can really look into their eyes and somebody's looking back at me other than when they do their third step. And there's also that change there that happens. But, um, I just love that sentence. It just has so much. I have, I, I flash back on all the faces that I've been able to say that to and, and read that to and just amazing. Um, eventually, all of that behavior, selling myself out, um, the fact that I was uh, raped when I was on a business trip, but I shoved that down. I was so sick and in so much denial and so delusional that even that I denied happening to me. Um, I, what I convinced myself after I fought him off and it didn't work and after he left, I convinced myself, wow, he must have really wanted me. That's how sick that's how sick of a person came into this program. Um, I I heard you mentioning uh, Sue Drum, and, and Sue's my one of my old sponsors, and um, she tells a story that people groan about when I say I identify with it, but I totally identify with it. She she talks about uh, that she always wanted to be number one in her husband's life, and um, one time, and so she would get in his face and get in his face because negative attention was better than no attention at all. And one time, she just wouldn't stop getting in his face, and she said, "He said, Sue, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kill you." And she just kept talking in his face, and he said, "Sue, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kill you." She kept talking, and he grabbed her, and he put his hands around her throat, and he had her down on the bed, and he was choking her, and she was just about to black out. And the first thought that that, uh, as she said, he was choking the living tar out of me, and um. And the first thought that went through her head was, this time I'm really going to die. And the next thought that immediately followed was, yes, but right now I have 100% of his attention. I identify with that. I may not have come from a violent relationship, but I identify with that. And that's that's my disease. And that is why I need to have the kinds of meetings that are like the meetings here, where people come in and they have commitments and they take their, and they, 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 uh, they represent Al-Anon when they go different places and they take, they, they want to be an example of Al-Anon and, uh, they work a program of emotional sobriety. Um, emotional sobriety is, is really, really important. I sponsor some, some women who are also in AA and, uh, to see them, to see the change even in their AA program as a result of practicing a program of emotional sobriety in Al-Anon. It's not for everyone. I'm not saying Al-Anon is for every AA member. I'm just saying these particular women have a lot of that Al-Anon, the Al-Anon-isms that um, they get a lot of help in Al-Anon. Um, again, I'm not promoting anything. I'm just just letting you know my experience with that. But um, anyway, boy, I'm really rambling. Uh, I told Laura I'm just going to ramble all over the place. And so... Um, be kind, don't judge. Um, <laughs> I want the approval of the alcoholics in the room. <laughs> anyway, as a result of the violence that I did to my sister, of being raped, of all the things that I did to sell myself out, and the fact that I wasn't a lady and I was just a big walking sack of ego, bluster, and nothing on the inside, um, I wound up breaking up with this man. I broke up with the married man. I broke up with the other guy. I broke up with everybody on the same day. And um, <laughs> it must have been a God thing because it was like seven days before my birthday, I remember. And I never would break up with anybody before my birthday. <laughs> and um, and I wound up uh, and I wound up basically getting. In, I quit my job. I quit my job, and uh, and this was a very successful job I had. I had lied about my age to get it, and I was, uh, you know, 
I was a big deal. I was a really big deal, making a lot of multi-million dollar deals and telling people three three times my age what to do. And it was um, at a big uh, television network, and I was a network executive, and it was a, it was a high-powered kind of thing. And and um, anyway, I uh, I quit my job. I quit all the relationships, and basically, I just went to bed. I just went to bed. I barely bathed. Um, I just ate junk. I wound up, uh, I would go out at night maybe to save on and get, you know, Oreos and order pizza or something like that and wear dark glasses to save on at night because I didn't want to run into anybody. Uh, I just sunk and sunk and sunk lower and lower and lower into a depression. I'm one of those really depressive personalities, and when I go, I go down really, really low. And um, and I couldn't do anything. I was completely helpless. I just, and my family, who loves to fix everybody because they love they love because they love people and they want them to be happy it's not out of anything you know malicious but um even my family said you're too depressing to talk to and that's amazing for my family that um even they didn't talk to me and um i shut myself off and um i stayed in bed and i was smelly and i was stinky and i was i was just i didn't change the sheets and it was really bad and i stayed that way for months and it got worse and worse and worse and um, one day I decided that I was going to kill myself. And I didn't realize that I had already attempted suicide when I was in high school. Again, I had gone into denial that I had overdosed on Valium and by the grace of God had woken up next to my vomit instead of asphyxiating on it. Um, because um, I know people that have died that way. And um, obviously God knew I was not well enough to like move on to the next plane of existence. So he's like, no, hon. <laughs> You haven't graduated. You're still in kindergarten. And um, so um, I decided that day that I was going to kill myself, and I was feeling my ribs for where I was going to stick the knife. And um, the phone rang, and I hadn't picked up the phone in a long time. As a matter of fact, I had this device on my phone that you actually had to have a code to even ring my phone. It wouldn't go through. It was a thing called a codophone that they used to have a long time ago. And then I'd ha- I had the codophone, and that went to the message machine. So that's high-tech isolation. And... Um, <laughs> And for some reason, I picked up the phone, maybe because I was going to kill myself. I was like, oh, just in case it's important. And um, so I picked up the phone, and um, and there was this girl on the other end of the phone who was who had dated a man in the same band as my ex-boyfriend. And um, she said she was going to kill herself and that she needed to go to a mental institution, and she wanted me to drive her. And... You know, if it were today in the program, which it has happened to me in the program, but if it, if it were in the program, I'd say, oh, really? I was going to kill myself, too. How are you going to do it? Oh, I was going to do this, and we'd get a big laugh over it. But um, God knew that day I had absolutely no assets left. There was not one asset left within me. <laughs> He's reconsidered. He wants me back. (laughs) So you just show up where you're supposed to be of service, and you two can get the gifts, newcomer. So you just stick around. (laughs) We'll just dangle a cute alcoholic right in front of you and keep you coming back for years before you figure that out. But... um, Anyway, I had not one asset left in my life, and God knew that the only thing I had left were defects. And what's amazing about God, and that's why I guess God is God, <laughs> is, uh, is he knows all that stuff. And um, and he takes any of us exactly where we are, like that story that they talk about, that um, if you're in a really tall building, you don't have to climb up all those stairs to have God pick you up in the helicopter on the roof. You can just stay in the basement, and he'll come find you wherever you are, and he'll get you. And... Um, and that day, I was ready to die, and I was ready to give it all up, and he used my defects of arrogance, and my defect of control, and my defect of superiority, and self-righteousness, and the know-it-all defect, to say to this girl, you don't need to go to a mental institution, you need to go to Al-Anon, I will call Al-Anon, and we'll go to a meeting, and that's how I got to Al-Anon. <laughs> 13th of April, 1985. God saved my life. 
she stayed for about 10 months and she went back out there and she, you know, she did her thing that worked for her. And by the grace of God, or maybe because I'm just so sick, God made sure that I would stick around. And, um, and I started an amazing journey. I was at my first meeting and, uh, these women, I, they must have God's will. I think they must have. I don't remember anything that they were saying. I remember some of the people that were there and, um, I still see a lot of those women at, at conventions and everything at home and, and, uh, but at the end of the meeting, they said, it's now time for the newcomers. Do the newcomers have anything they want to say? And I was so arrogant, you know, just so arrogant. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, over here, yeah. Like there's, you know, 12 people in the room, and I have to wave just to make sure they see me. And, um, and they said yes, and I said, well, you guys are talking about God's will this and God's will that, and, you know, if you're having... If you're in God's will, then you're going to have a good day. And if you're not in God's will, you're going to have a bad day. Maybe it's God's will that you have a bad day. Maybe God wants you to stub your toe on the street so that the next time you walk down that path, you will know to be careful right there. <laughs> and uh, and they said, thank you, keep coming back. <laughs> and you know, I really thought I stumped them. <laughs> I really did. And this woman came up to me after the meeting. She was 72 years old. She had, you know, 20,000 years in the program. She became my first sponsor. And she came up to me and she said, you know, honey, it may be God's will that you stub your toe, but it's your will as to how long you feel the pain. And I went, whoa. And I thought, that is so profound. And I had absolutely no idea what she was talking about. None whatsoever, but it was so profound that I knew a deep thinker like me was in the right place, you know, that I could keep coming back if it was that profound and deep. And um, and I kept coming back, and I got commitments, and I screwed up every one of them. You know, I, oh, I have a coffee commitment, and I have $6 in the coffee kitty, and I need gas in my car, so... I'm just going to borrow $3 till tomorrow. And, oh, I didn't remember. Did I borrow three? Well, I'll just put in five. And believe me, I put in a lot more than I stole. But uh, I screw up. I screwed up every single commitment and probably to this day in this program. And um, But I kept coming back. And these women loved me no matter what. And I didn't see how arrogant and ugly and self-righteous and smug I was until years later when I went to a meeting and there was a girl exactly like me leading the meeting. And I went, oh, my God, they really did love me. <laughs> And I learned about supporting sobriety, and I learned about, and I learned about, um, from the podiums of open AA meetings, I learned about the disease of alcoholism, and how not to take the disease so personally all the time, that when an alcoholic is, is needing to run, or an alcoholic is needing to not call his sponsor, and an alcoholic is needing to just go crazy and sit there and think, and negatively project, and all of those things that they just periodically need to do, just like I periodically need to do them in my program, I can't take that personally, and I've got to stay out of his business because he's going to have to hit that surrender point to get him one more time closer to God, one more time to that next level of his surrender, one more time to that feeling of knowing that he's an alcoholic and that he needs to be an Alcoholics Anonymous and that I have to do those things to one more time have to hit that surrender point after I've banged my head against the wall so many times to one more time say, oh, I'm still just an Al-Anon. I'm not different. My case isn't any different than anybody else's. It's not, I'm not better than, I'm not less than. I'm just a garden variety Al-Anon who needs to focus on other people because it's too painful to look at me. Just like Alcoholics Anonymous is designed not for people to stop drinking, that's a part of it, but it's designed for people to learn to live without drinking. Al-Anon is designed for people like me to learn to live without needing to be obsessed with another human being 24 hours a day. And that's impossible for someone like me. I still get obsessed. I still get obsessed with evil places and things. My obsessions aren't as often, and my obsessions aren't as long, but they are just as deep and just as powerful and just as painful when they happen. But the road really does get narrower, and it's less and less acceptable to me to stay in that place. I know I have tools today. I know I can go to a meeting. I know I call my sponsor. I know I have the literature. I know I have God to whom I can turn and pray and that he does love me exactly where I am. I, I really identified with, with the speaker who said they thought they had to get good before they could get God. And, and I know today that God loves me for what I can't do, not for what I can do. And I can go to him in my worst times. And before I was so arrogant and smug, I would think that I'd have to, because of my 
you know, the Al-Anon's biggest defect is control, obviously, and, and I would think that I even have to control my life back together before I can really surrender to God, and I, and I don't. When I'm laying on the ground flat out is when I can just surrender to God. Um, it reminds me of my favorite Al-Anon story. Um, uh, we were talking about Al-Anon jokes before the meeting, and, uh, you know, they were doing the Al-Anon salute and the Al-Anon handshake, and, and, um, Know how many Alanons does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. It's okay. I'll just sit here in the dark. And um, <laughs> and um, but my favorite Alanon story that is so me. It is just so me. Is about um, this this there there's a room there's a room with two doors in it. And a normal woman walks in the room and she's normal. So she goes to the first door first and she opens it up and and uh, an alcoholic comes out and conks her on the head and she says, "Ow, that hurts!" And she slams the door. I'm not going to do that again. She goes to the second door. She opens it up, there's a beautiful paradise, she walks in and she's never heard from again. The Elanon walks in the room and we have to do everything backwards and upside down. You know, we say we want love, but we pick people who have other priorities. We say we want commitment, but I'm always saying, if he doesn't change, to, if he doesn't change by tomorrow, I'm out of here, because I can't handle commitment. We say we want intimacy, but we're so busy trying to put ourselves up on that pedestal, I'm so busy trying to play mom and and put somebody else down and emasculate him that I can't t- I can't have intimacy in my relationships if I act like that if I take bad actions. So an Al-Anon is so backwards that she walks into that room and she goes to the second door first and she opens it up and there's a beautiful paradise. She says, "Well, that's really beautiful. That's kind of boring. I wonder what's in the other door. It might be a little bit more exciting." She goes back to the first door. She opens it up. Alcoholic comes out, conks her on the head. She says, "Ow, that hurts." She slams the door. Opens it up again. He conks her on the head again. Ow, that hurts. She slams the door. She goes a third time. He conks her on the head. Ow, that hurts. She goes to it a fourth time and opens it up. He's not there. So she goes in looking for him. <laughs> That's me. That's me. My disease, my disease, and my ism of denial tells me that I am not all those things. That I can handle commitment, that I can handle intimacy, that I can be loving, that I can handle a loving, you know, relationship, that I can handle all those things. But if so, then why are my actions saying something completely different? And that's why my denial has to be so great so I can live in that delusion. You know, and it talks about that a lot in the big book when it talks about the, the, the different, the different ideas of the alcoholic and how uncommon sense becomes common sense and all the things that turn our lives upside down here. I had to come into Al-Anon to be turned right side up because everything that I said I wanted in my life and that I wanted from God and that I wanted from you and that I blamed you and that I blamed God for not getting them and not giving them to me in my life, I wasn't willing to take right actions. And this program is designed for people like me to learn how to take the actions first and the feelings will follow. I can't sit around and say, when do I, when I feel like being loving, I'll get out of bed and be loving. Because most likely I'm not going to feel like being loving. Because I'm sitting there thinking about me. And as soon as I take the action of showing up, as soon as I take the action of being loving, suddenly I feel like being loving. And it really is what they talk about in the St. Francis Prayer, and that's why it is my favorite prayer, um, that my purpose as a human being on this planet, I always thought was to be loved. And I always felt unfulfilled. It would be like a fish trying to live in the air. It just doesn't work. God designed me to love. And that's where my fulfillment comes from. And these 12 steps enable me to have that spiritual awakening so that I realize that of who I am. My awakening is I know who I am today and I know what my purpose is. More is being revealed all the time and who I am a lot of the time, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, I have to take it all because <laughs> I'm definitely far from any place I ever want to be in this program. Like I said, I'm such a slow learner. But um, I... Uh, I just had an am- amazing, miraculous journey in this program. And about four years in the program, I met this guy, and uh, we were going to trudge the road of happy destiny together because he was a sober alcoholic and an amazing speaker. I'm sure a lot of you have heard him. He's just a great speaker and just really funny. And um, that relationship didn't work out, and, and I was I was sad about that. And um, and I uh, it was it took me a long time to get over that. It was one of those you know oh look he's with somebody else now he started dating somebody he's a sponsor. That's lovely. And, um, you know, and then he started dating somebody else. And, I, you know, I did the thing for years. You know, I just sit at the meetings. Oh, there he is with her again. My, she's getting a little hippie now, isn't she? 
she really shouldn't be wearing that yellow skirt. And uh, I just, I, I had all, I, I just had all of the competition. I had all of that stuff back, and it took me a long time to get over that relationship. And um, but meanwhile, as I was, I was letting go of that relationship. Uh, a gal that I had sponsored for um, over five years is that Z? Oh my God! Hi. <laughs> Z just moved here from the Pacific Group. Hi. Oh, wow. Um, it's a small world. Um, um, anyway, uh, a gal that I had sponsored for over five years, um, she was 18 when she came in the program, and um, and she really started working the steps at 19. Um, we went to a, a program bridal shower one night, and she said she had a headache and um, that she needed to go home. And we started driving in the car, and it was a series of events that were a God deal. Um, they were all a God deal because she always drove, and this one night she didn't drive. I had been hospitalized for a bunch of weird headaches the summer before that they kept saying were an aneurysm, and uh, they didn't turn out to be an aneurysm. They were just these weird floating migraines that were explained years down the road. But uh, I wound up learning about brain aneurysms, and I had no idea about them. So I went, had gone through these spinal taps and really painful, painful, painful summer over these headaches, and I didn't know why. And like the promises say, you know, no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. And every single experience I've had in this program and every single experience I've had in this life, in my life, as a result of this program, I can see how every single one has benefited somebody else. And uh that night she said she had a headache and instead of just saying take an aspirin and lay down um, I knew there was something wrong and uh, we got in the car and she started to lose her ability to speak and she started losing her muscle control and um, and we were getting her to the hospital as fast as we could and we got to the hospital and they thought that she was on a drug overdose and I said this woman's never smoked a joint in her life this girl has never smoked a joint in her life and uh, they kept testing her for that and they, they just didn't I was saying it's an aneurysm it's an aneurysm and um Anyway, um, they finally took her in for a CAT scan, and um, she had had an aneurysm the size of a fist um, in her brain, and um, uh, she was still alive. Her body was still alive, and um, her dad came over, and her mom was flying in from England, and um, and. She had always been um, just. We always drove to meetings together, and we always talked about God all the time. And she always she was British, and she oh, God's will for me, and oh that's so weird. What's God's will for me, and God's will this, and God's will that, and that's all it seemed we ever talked about. And um, just weeks before, she had said to me, "If I'm ever put on life support, I left a note in my jewelry box that says you're in charge of whether or not I pull the plug." <laughs> and I said, "Well, first of all, your family's going to be there, and I do not take precedence over your family." Second of all, it's not legal. And uh, third of all, you're picking the wrong person to make that decision because I believe in miracles and I don't think I could ever pull the plug. And uh, that was about actually about two weeks before. And uh, so we were at the hospital and um, she was on life support and her mom was going to be there from England. And um, her dad said, I want you in on the decision. Her mom's going to be here in about a half an hour and I want you in, in on the decision of whether or not we um, pull the plug. And um, I went into her hospital room again, and I said, Susanna, um, Susanna R., that's what we called her, um, I know I've asked so much of you, and you've always been there for me, and um, you're my best friend, and I don't know how I'm going to live without you, except that I know that I will, and that I'm going to be okay. But I know you're talking to God right now, but your mom's going to be here in a half an hour. So if you could just go talk to him again <laughs> and let him know, that if you're meant to live, we will do anything we can, feed you whatever it is to to take care of you. But if he wants to take you home, it's really okay. We're going to be okay, and you can go. And uh, I walked out of the room, and ten minutes later, her brain completely exploded down the back of her neck, and she was gone. And we never had to make that decision. And one more time, she was always of service. One more time, she was always of service. And uh, people gave me books, and they gave me other things that told me that, you know, in, in the case of eternal life, that, um, you know, my life here on earth is just but the blink of an eye. And that gave me so much comfort because I knew that all she had to do was blink once and we were all going to be there. Her whole home group was going to be there with her. And that made me feel really good. And um, But I, 
I, I wrote about it and I, I was sad and I was grieving for a long time and I, and I was feeling worse and worse and worse and I couldn't get over it. And I, and I belonged to a, a, you know, a very strong group at that point that was, you know, you got over things very quickly there. <laughs> and, uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't, I just, it was, was going on a long time. And, uh, a couple years later, I was, um, I was at my, my new home group at that point, and a woman came up to me and she said, you know, I don't normally mix my profession with meetings, but I'm a doctor and you're very sick. And uh, you're, in, you're in great danger of dying and you need to go to the doctor tomorrow. And then she told everybody else and my sponsor to make sure I really did it. And uh, But I believed her when she said it. And, um, and I went to the doctor the next day, and I went to this doctor and he said, you have an advanced case of uh, Graves' disease, hyperthyroidism, and um, you are... Uh, your, your liver and your heart are really damaged. I'm afraid that the lower quadrants of your heart are going to start to fibrillate as much as your upper quadrants of your heart, which means you could die at any moment. And um, you could drop dead at any moment. We need to take you to, that's what he said, I, we need to take you to the hospital across the street for surgery right now because you can drop dead at any moment. And I knew when he said that that it was time for a second opinion. And um, somebody tells you you're going to die, take a poll. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, so thank God you know thank God the program gives us the ability to do footwork and not to make people our higher power because of that second tradition and to be able to think clearly and to be able to say a prayer and at that moment intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle me you know and uh, I called my other doctor over at UCLA and um, he he was uh, he he connected me to the head of cardiology of all of UCLA and that man said, I'm so glad you called. He was so kind. He said, I'm so glad you called. If you go to the operating table now, um, chances are your thyroid will explode and you will die on the operating table. Get out of there as fast as you can. Get out of that man's office and come over to UCLA right now. And um, and he saved my life. And um, he, we went over to UCLA and there was not really any procedure they could do besides medication for quite a long period of time because my thyroid was so... Um, huge that there was nothing they could do um, as far as iodine or surgery because they didn't want it to explode in my body. And um, so for years, I was um, trying to regulate the thyroid. And anyone who knows anything about the endocrinological system, I can't even say it, let alone know anything about it, but it affects your hormones. And it's like going through menopause and, you know, postpartum and, you know, teenagerhood and everything all at one time. I mean, it's just... I was crazy. I was up, I was down, I would cry, I would laugh. I, I just had absolutely no idea what was going on. And I was very, very ill for quite a few years. And um, I lost a lot of my hair and, I, and, you know, my vanity and I gained a lot of weight and I just looked really just gross and I just really have had a very, very tough time um, the last few years. And um, last summer I got to the point where I could have the surgery. Um, because my thyroid was regulated enough. And um, they shut my body down for 10 days but before the surgery with medication. And that was another rough thing that I had to just keep turning over to God and walking through one day at a time. You know, I knew that what my hormones and what my body was telling me were not right. And this program has allowed me to separate those things in my life. My whole life was designed in relationships and dealing with you and dealing with work and dealing with my body and dealing with anything my whole life was designed on, I feel this way, so it must be true. And that caused me to push everybody out of my life and to wind up an isolated, suicidal loser. And even with the health problems, I was able to say, I feel this way because my body is feeling this way. But this is not true. I have come to know a new freedom and a new happiness, like it says in the promises. I do have friends, even though I think that they all hate me right now. I do need these meetings even though I want to quit Al-Anon. I do. I am going to keep calling my sponsor even though I don't want to talk to her. All those things that I felt because of this program of action that's outlined by our sponsors and by the people that have gone before us, because of the program of action, I was able to take actions I didn't believe would work. And that's why I was told to do actions when I feel like everything's okay in this program because then when my rear end is falling off, I'm in such a habit of taking those same actions that I don't have to believe they will work. I will, I will rely on blind faith. And, um, and that's what I did. And I walked through that period of time, not with grace and not with dignity. I do admit that at one point I was sitting in a meeting, um, and our meeting splits up into little groups and I was sitting in my group and I looked at the people in my group and I said, if I had an AK-47 right now, I would kill every one of you. <laughs> and, you know, 
I'm not proud of that. But nobody said I had to do it with grace and dignity. They just said I had to do it. And uh, and I kept showing up. And I had a really tough time. And I wanted to run away from the program. And I wanted to leave. And I didn't. And as a direct result of that, um, I have come through the other side of that feeling like, I can walk through anything in this program, that it's going to be okay. And just like George was talking about the other night, there I was, so sad and so suicidal and going through the grieving and the letting go of that relationship and then my, my sponsor dying and my, you know, my best friend dying and, and all of this other stuff. And I had not had the will to live because of the physical things and because of all that emotional stuff in a long time. And if you want to have the will to live, believe me, just have somebody tell you you could drop dead at any moment and it comes back like this, you know? And, um, and it really is. It, it really is an amazing journey, and it really is an amazing life. I um, I want to talk about something else, but I don't want to take up any more time. So I just I want to close with this little story that I read the other day that I just thought was so cute. And uh, I never close with like stories or whatever, but you know I just I don't know I just thought this was so cute. I'm gonna be really cheesy or whatever, but. Um, there's, I read this little story about this little boy, and um, it just reminded me so much of the program because he's he's walking along, and he, and he had his ball in one hand, and he had his bat in the other. And he's walking along, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, the best hitter in the whole world. And he throws up the, the ball in the air, and he swings at it, and he misses it. So he picks up the ball again, and he says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, here he is, the greatest hitter in the whole universe. And he throws up the ball and he swings at it and he misses it. And he picks up the ball again and he throws it up in the air and he goes, Ladies and gentlemen, the best hitter ever in the history of all baseball anywhere in any galaxy anywhere, gazillion million miles away. And he throws it up in the air and he swings at it and he misses it. And he says, Man, what a pitcher. Thank you for allowing me to see that I can be a pitcher.